Romans chapter 5. Let's read. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Now, Lord, thank you for your presence. Open our hearts now to hear and receive not what the preacher will say, but what the Spirit will say in the midst of the preaching. Speak to us today, O Lord. Challenge, inspire, encourage, motivate us. Above all, transform us by the power of your word. I lift up other life-giving churches and I pray special blessing upon them. And I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. I especially pray for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. I pray that you will draw them back to you so that not one of them will be lost. I pray all these things in the only name that matters, the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I grew up in a church culture in which there was a great deal of emphasis placed on right behavior. In that culture, the saved people were those who behaved a certain way and kept a certain code of conduct and lived by a certain standard. The unsaved people were those who didn't keep the rules and violated the code of conduct. Over time, that way of thinking created a great deal of concern and even fear about my salvation. I don't think they ever intended it to be this way, but for much of my life, I lived with the fear that if I slipped up or in some way violated the code of conduct associated with the saved, and Jesus came at that moment... If I had not had a chance to repent, I would be left behind and not be with him in eternity. Consequently, I spent a lot of time repenting. <clears throat> Every time I did anything remotely questionable, guilt would stab my conscience and I would repent. Every revival service, I would be at the altar repenting. In those days, we had Sunday night service. Every Sunday night when the invitation was given, I would come down front and pray and repent. I was constantly looking over my shoulder to see if I had taken a wrong turn. I lived in fear of displeasing the Lord and losing my salvation. I lived in doubt, wondering if I were really and truly saved say something unkind, or worse, profane. And I worried Jesus might come before I could ask forgiveness. Give in to temptation, and once again, fear gripped my heart until I could get to an altar and repent. Without ever meaning to, the culture in which I was raised made my salvation dependent upon my ability to live by the standards deemed acceptable by the group. I knew I could not save myself. I knew I had to trust Jesus to be saved. But once I did that, 
I lived as if staying saved was accomplished by my own works. Am I preaching where anybody else has experienced? Okay, just making sure I'm preaching to the right crowd today. What I've discovered in over 40 years of being a lead pastor is that my experience is a very common one, and there are a great number of people who continue to struggle with this dilemma. You live as if your salvation is very fragile. The smallest slip-up could cost you eternity in the presence of the Lord. It's what I call the struggle for salvation. I don't suppose there's a person listening to this message who doesn't want to know how to get into heaven. The answer is really very simple. According to the Bible, what you need to get to heaven is righteous perfection. I'm not making this up. You read your Bible. And it's right here that the train often goes off the rails. In an attempt to produce this righteous perfection, we have created quite a list of requirements. The thinking goes that if you do the right things and refrain from doing the wrong things, then you'll be good enough to get into heaven. The problem is nobody is capable of keeping all the requirements of the list. See, just about the time you feel pretty good about not lying and cheating and stealing and envying and gossiping and losing your temper and overindulging and fornicating, you find yourself being tripped up by pride that you're able to be so virtuous. <laughs> We've attached all kinds of extras to try and earn favor with God. You know, attend church, pray, read your Bible, be baptized, become a member, pay your tithe and offering, give to missions and charity, perform acts of service in the community. Did I say pay tithes and offering? I meant to do that. Get involved in the ministries of the church, do good deeds, think good thoughts, don't dip, smoke, or chew, and don't run around with girls who do. <clears throat> Stay out of bars, don't cuss. The list is practically endless. It's exhausting to try to remember what to do and what to avoid. Everywhere you turn, there's a landmine. On the one hand, you find somebody behaving far worse than you, so you feel pretty good about yourself, right? But then you find another far more devout than you, and you beat yourself up trying to attain to that level. The boxer Muhammad Ali said, one day we're all going to die and God is going to judge us, our good deeds and bad deeds. If the bad outweighs the good, you'll go to hell. If the good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. And that's the theology of every world religion. It's the theology of karma. It's the theology of the Koran. You find that theology in popular books, in TV shows, in movies. The one place you'll never hear it taught is Scripture. Okay. Scripture denies the belief we could ever do enough to be good enough right. for God. Amen. That's right. This is the message of the Lord through the prophet 
in Isaiah 64 and 6, for all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. This is the message of Romans 3.12. There is none righteous, not even one. The stark reality is there is nothing you can do to achieve the perfection necessary to gain entrance to heaven. All your hard work is an exercise in futility. Now, if I said, let's stand for the benediction, that would be a terrible place to end. <laughs> that would be terrible, tragic news were that the end of the story. But our text tells us about a sacrificial strategy. It's right there in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith. I want to give you a statement that is going to, this is going to liberate somebody, all right? This one statement, when understood and embraced, will cancel fear and will deliver you from the bondage of guilt and condemnation. Are you ready? Somebody's going to need to write this down. Here it is. Your salvation is as strong as your Savior. If you are trusting in your ability to abide by the code of the organization to keep you saved, your salvation is fragile indeed because your abilities will eventually fail. But if you are trusting Jesus to keep you saved, your salvation is strong and secure. Your salvation is as strong as your Savior. In order to be saved... You must understand God's message of grace. You have to reject the idea of earned, never given, and replace it with given, never earned. You are never saved because you deserve it. You are only saved because God loves you. You, you are not saved by anything you can do and you don't stay saved by any righteous deeds you perform. You are saved initially, and you stay saved by the power of Jesus. You are not justified by works. You are justified by faith in Jesus. This, this word justification, we toss that around in the church without really knowing what's going on with it. So I want to talk to you about that today. Justification is legal jargon. It comes from a court of law. Now, it's important to remember in a human court of law, a person who is guilty can never be made not guilty. Let me illustrate. Suppose you commit a crime and it goes to court. Let's say you steal something and you're caught red-handed. But because it's your first offense, instead of sending you to prison, the court decides to fine you. Now, just suppose in this made-up scenario, because none of you would ever do this. Just suppose you cannot pay the fine. It's too much for you. But somebody else, 
Say your, say your great aunt Bertha <laughs> comes along and pays the fine for you. Once the fine is paid, you can leave that courtroom, walk right past the officer who arrested you, and the police officer cannot touch you because the fine has been paid. The penalty of the law has been met. Therefore, the law has been satisfied. Now, this is an illustration to describe what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. He died as a substitute for us. He paid the penalty for our sins. This is true, but it isn't the whole truth. See, if you are fined in a court of law and that fine is paid either by yourself or by someone else, the law has been satisfied and you are free to go. However, you are still guilty of the crime. The guilt of your crime has not been taken away. And if you should commit another crime six months later and are caught again, at the end of the trial, someone will probably get up before the sentence is pronounced and they will say, wait a minute, Your Honor, this person has already committed an offense six months ago. They were found guilty and the record of that guilt is still on the books. Although you're fine was paid and the law was satisfied, you will forever remain guilty of that crime. You can never, ever get rid of your guilt. This is where the work of Jesus in justification comes into play. Justification means that men and women who have been declared guilty because of their sin can be treated as if the sin had never been committed. Being justified is a recognition of innocence. It's a declaration of not guilty. Never in a human court can someone who is guilty of a crime be made innocent. So somebody may be granted a pardon, but that's different. Once a person's guilt has been established, he or she can never be declared innocent. Yet, I want to tell you, this is precisely what God has done. God pronounces every true believer to be justified before him. When you put your faith in Jesus, God then sees you as though you had never sinned. Justification does not mean you are perfect. It just means God sees you as though you were. He can do that not because you are perfect, but because Jesus is perfect. You are accepted and made right before God the Father through Jesus. Now, let me tell you, let me tell you, the devil will bring up your past and condemn you for it. Other people will not forget your transgressions. Your own memory will be overloaded with reminders of your faults and failures. In the heavenly courtroom, the devil, other people, and your own conscience will cry out for a conviction. But when you put your faith in Jesus, the heavenly judge will bring the gavel down with a final word of not guilty. Notice the verse says, therefore, having been justified. 
the way God sees you is a once and for all verdict. In other words, there is no overturning what God has declared you to be. Oh, you may mess up sometimes, but you're still righteous in his eyes. You may fall down sometimes, but you're still righteous in his eyes. You may not do everything right in the eyes of those around you, but in God's eyes, you're still righteous. You may stumble every now and then. You may come up short, but in God's eyes, you are still righteous. The sacrificial strategy is 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The sacrificial strategy to remove the guilt and condemnation from your life is for you to simply put your trust in Jesus and his completed work more than you believe in your own ability. See, faith is the issue with God. Always has been, always will be. That's what Hebrews 11.6 means when it says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. That simply means no matter what else you do in life, no matter how good you are, no matter how kind, no matter how moral, no matter how successful, life lived outside the parameters of faith is not pleasing to God. In fact, Romans 14.23 goes so far as to say, whatever is not from faith is sin, What puts you in right standing with God is not your works. It isn't because you live by all the requirements of the church. It isn't because you follow the rules and regulations and rituals. It isn't your piety and it isn't your productivity. Any works you try to add to justification are evil. What puts you in right standing with God is faith. And what keeps you in right standing with God is faith. Your salvation is only as strong as your Savior. When you stand before the Lord, you know you're guilty. The devil knows you're guilty. God knows you're guilty. But because you believe in Jesus, because you have faith in his finished work on the cross, you have been justified and God treats you as though you are innocent. He has declared you righteous by faith. The sacrificial strategy for your right standing with God is justification. The sacrificial strategy for your justification is faith in the completed work of Jesus. See, when you cannot be good enough to earn divine favor, when you could not save yourself, God sent Jesus to die on Calvary's cross. (laughs) Jesus, the only begotten son of God, left the splendors of heaven, came to this earth as a baby conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a cruel death to pay the penalty for the sin of lost humanity, was buried in a borrowed tomb, was resurrected on the morning of the first day of the week, ascended back to the Father in glory, sits at the right hand of the majesty on high as the great intercessor, is one day coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords to establish a peaceable kingdom over which he will reign for all eternity. This is the gospel, the good news, the power of God for salvation. Let me tell you, God is not impressed with you or your good works, but he is very impressed with his son. When every natural inclination screams do to stay righteous, God says, done. 
Through faith in Jesus, not only is the debt of your sin paid in full, but through faith in Jesus, the verdict over your life is reversed to read not guilty. No guilt, no shame, no condemnation. This is the justification in which you stand. Your salvation is as strong as your Savior. Am I helping anybody today? This may not do anything for you, but it's blessing me. About to bless my socks off. Preacher, you're preaching good today. Thank you. The Bible says David encouraged himself in the Lord. Every now and then, I just need to do that too. So. Not only do I, want to tell you, do I want to tell you about the struggle for salvation and the sacrificial strategy, but before we get out of here today, I want to tell you about justification being the sovereign solution. When you understand the blessings of justification, you'll stop trying to be perfect and you'll quit worrying about not being able to stay saved. Verse one of our text says, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first blessing of justification is right here, peace with God. As we sit in this service today, there are major conflicts taking place around the world. Some of them, like, like the war in Ukraine, and the war in Israel, have been, going, have been going on for so long, they no longer dominate news feeds. It's almost as if we've become desensitized to where we accept them as a natural part of the world in which we live. But there's one war that has been waged longer than any other, began in Genesis chapter three. It's a war between humanity and God. A few verses later in verse 10 of Romans chapter five, we are described as being enemies of God. According to God's word, people of this world are in a state of militant hostility and rebellion towards the God of the universe. God is God, we are ungodly. God is perfect, we are sinners. We have different attitudes and morals. We have missed the mark set by God. We live in open rebellion against God. Through being justified, however, we have peace with God. Peace with God is the removal of the hate and the hostility between us and God. I know some of you look at me going, Pastor, I don't think I was hostile or... or, or or an enemy of God. I mean, you know, even when I was a ranked sinner, I wasn't a hostile enemy of God. Oh, yes, you were. You just didn't know it. Because all of your actions were contrary to God. You were in rebellion. But peace with God is the removal of that hate and hostility. Peace with God sets us free from the necessity to strive to gain or to maintain our acceptance with God. Peace with God is being able to live in his presence without fear of rejection, condemnation, and punishment, either today or in the future. Peace with God is the certainty that even when we are aware of our sin and guilt, God is still for us. 
Sin and guilt make no difference in his relationship with us because that relationship is anchored in the work of Jesus on the cross by which our sin is forgiven and our guilt robbed of its power of accusation. This piece has nothing to do with our feelings. It is all about what God did for us and in us through his only begotten son, Jesus. Not only does justification bring peace with God, but second, it gives us access into grace. Verse two of our text says, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. The, The word translated in this version as introduction is the word prosagoge, which means admission or access. It means to bring or draw near. It means to approach. Through Jesus, we have gained an ongoing access. We have been introduced into the very presence of God. Before Jesus, the message was clear. A respectful distance must be maintained between the worshiper and God. Think think about the temple restrictions for a moment. Remember, Gentiles were restricted to the outer court of the temple. In fact, there was a sign posted saying that Gentiles were not permitted any further upon penalty of death. Women were restricted to the court of the women. Next was the court of Israel for Jewish men. Next, there was the court of the priests where the altar of sacrifice was located. Finally, inside the temple proper, there was the holy place where only the priests could minister. And beyond this, behind a thick curtain, was the holy of holies. Only the high priest was permitted to enter this room, and then only once per year on the Day of Atonement. And he could not enter that room without the blood of an innocent sacrifice. And at the death of Jesus, however, the veil curtaining off the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom, symbolically declaring, come on in. All are welcome to draw near to God through faith in Jesus. What's this? Because you are declared not guilty through your faith in Jesus, you now have full access to the Father in heaven. This is the meaning of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. Another translation says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That word boldly is a, is a fun word because in the, it, it literally means let us, come, let us draw near with freedom of speech. See, God invites you to come into his presence and just say whatever is on your mind. There is nothing that should hinder you from coming into the presence of the Almighty. Not guilt, not shame, not fear, not anything done to you, not anything you have done, not feelings of inadequacy, 
not feelings of unworthiness. Faith in Jesus declares you justified. Justification declares you not guilty, so come on in. Peace with God, access to his presence. The third blessing, stand in grace. Verse two says, we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now that you've been introduced and given access to grace, you have an ongoing standing in the realm of God's grace. That word stand implies a place of solid footing. It's a place where we belong by right, not in ourselves, but by our union with Jesus, the rightful heir. See, standing in grace means you don't have to prove you are worthy of God's love. You are free from the score sheet because the account is settled in Jesus. So instead of, what's this? Instead of spending all your time beating yourself up for not being enough, use that time to praise Jesus for him being more than enough. I'm trying to help somebody today. To say you are saved by grace through faith and then to live like you have to keep yourself saved by your own efforts is a complete contradiction. The, the same faith and grace by which you get saved is the same faith and grace that will keep you saved. The blessing of justification. Peace with God, access into grace, stand in grace, finally, hope of glory. Listen to verse two once more. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. The biblical concept of hope is not like we have it. Instead, the biblical concept is a confident expectation something will happen because God said it will happen. J.B. Phillips calls it the happy certainty of the glory of God. <laughs> This hope of glory is the confident expectation that one day God will fulfill all his promises to us. I don't think I did that well. Let me, let me back up and try that again. The hope of glory is the absolute certain confident expectation that one day, God will fulfill all his promises to us. One of these days, we're going to stand before the Lord. On that day, it is justification that will give us entrance into his presence for all eternity. I'm telling you, this life is not all there is. There is coming a better and brighter day the same Jesus who was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, who walked the sandy shores of the Galilee, who was crucified on Golgotha's hill, who was buried in a borrowed tomb, who resurrected on the morning of the first day of the week, 
who ascended into heaven and is today at the right hand of the Father as the great intercessor, this same Jesus, not another Jesus, not a pretend Jesus, not a pseudo-Jesus, this same Jesus is coming again. And when he returns, those who are his will be resurrected into glorified bodies. Your mortal physical body will be transformed into the eternal physical body in which you will dwell forever. And in that body, you will experience no more sickness, no more pain, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more struggle, no more counseling sessions, no more doctor's appointments, no more hospital stays, no more funerals, no more separation from loved ones, no more temptation, no more tears, no more trial, no more tragedy. Every wrong will be made right. Every question will have an answer. Every doubt will be erased. Every disappointment will be resolved. This is the blessing of those who are justified. Your past is forgiven. Your present is managed. Your future is secure. Hallelujah. This is the security of the believer. Hear it again. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Hear me today. You don't have to please or appease God. Jesus has already pleased and appeased God for you. Because of faith in Jesus, you are pleasing to God apart from your performance. And this takes a struggle out. This, this settles the issue. Your salvation is as strong as your Savior. If you're trusting in what you can do for your salvation, you have a fragile salvation. But if you're trusting in Jesus, your faith is as strong as your Savior. Amen. Stand with me, please.